Morning, guys. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And this morning we continue in our series of the book of Hebrews. And uh, right before we start, I just wanted to say that uh, this is a very, 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 it's a very hard book. Okay. And, uh, and as you guys know, I am a, I'm a young pastor, not of age, but of experience. And so uh, I pray that you guys would dive into this deep pool that we're going to dive today and uh, allow me to uh, be of help. Uh, but more than anything, let us, let us trust God this morning as we come to Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 6. Let us read the word of God. It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the layings on the, of the hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. And holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. And produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles. It is worthless. And near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way. Yet in your case, beloved. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit The promises. Let us pray. Father, we want to be imitators. We do not want to be sluggish. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that this morning, this word that is a a, a warning to us, Father, that it would reach our hearts deep within our souls, May we grasp this warning and may we grasp the encouragement of the assurance of hope. Father, I pray that you would anoint me to preach your word, Father. I am no one. But you are faithful and merciful. And Father, anoint the hearers this morning. That your preach word would be 
received with faith and hope. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, church, as you guys saw this morning in the parking lot, it's, it's, just, it's just a mess, right? I mean, there are so many people playing soccer and stuff like that. But besides that, I think there's also a lot of cars because what, what, what is today? What, what do people celebrate around the world today? Palm Sunday. And what exactly are they celebrating in Palm Sunday? You see, in Palm Sunday, what, what Christians around the world celebrate is the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem one week or five days before his death. And uh, if we actually looked in our Bibles, in the 21st chapter of Matthew, I don't want you to turn there, you don't have to, but most Bibles would have this, this uninspired title on top of your uh, 21st chapter of that book. And it's this quote-unquote, the triumphal entry. And it does so because this chapter, we get a description of Jesus celebrating, being celebrated as he enters into the city of Jerusalem, five days prior to his death. In fact, we are told that as he was getting closer to the city, riding in a donkey, the multitudes were spreading branches. That's why they call it Palm Sunday. Because they were, they were, they were just putting branches on the floor and they were just laying them there, spreading them, big branches. But not only were they doing this, some of them wanted to show their excitement over Jesus to even bigger levels. And so instead of putting branches, they were actually taking off their cloaks. They were taking off their cloaks and they were putting down their cloaks on the ground so the donkey that Jesus was riding in would be able to go over their cloaks. But you see, not only were they doing apparent deeds of worship, but they were also with their mouths. They were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And as He entered into Jerusalem, the city was bussing. I mean, there was celebration going on. It was stirred because they were receiving their king. But I doubt if Jesus would ever have called it the triumphal entry. You see, he would have, he would have probably referred to it as the day of sorrows. My friend, that was the day when he left the donkey's back to go into the temple, and for the second time in his ministry, he cleaned out the money changers and the filth that had accumulated in his father's house. It was the same day that he stopped the offerings of Israel and would not permit any man to offer sacrifice in the temple. And it was the day that he went up onto the Mount of Olives and looking out over the city, his heart broke and yearning, and yearning over that city, that wretched city, and he cried out an unforgettable word. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hands gathered her broad under her wings, and you would not. And so with tears coming down his face, he wept. But if the story would have ended there, we would have probably been saying, why is Jesus weeping? Did he not see the revival in the city? 
these people re receiving him. They're receiving him. They're joyous. Right? Just like many today receive Jesus. But five days later, my friends, he was nailed to a cross outside that very city's gates. Where was the multitude that greeting him when he came in? Where were they? Do you know where they were? They were there. They were the very ones who were crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. The very people that received him with joy and celebration, five days later, are saying crucify him. But how can it be? How can he be so welcomed one day and so despised the next? Is this even possible? Can men and women who profess Christ as their blessed king at one point in time renounce their profession to the point of utter ruin? And this is the very question that is being dealt with in our text this morning. This Hebrew preacher is writing this sermonic letter with a compassionate pastoral concern addressing a congregation of professing Hebrew Christians who through much persecution were being tempted to renounce their confession. These Jews who had professed Jesus had become outcasts in the eyes of their countrymen. They had been thrown out of the Jewish communities that some of them had, had, had been born in and, and, and had been raised all their lives. Many had lost their properties and suffered active persecution by those who rejected Jesus. And so you would think, you would think that the writer of this letter would spend most of his ink in addressing this external danger his audience is facing, right? I mean, isn't this what most of us would expect? Someone who could help us fix the wrongs around us. You see, we might not be facing the same type of opposition that these first century Hebrews Christians are facing, but we also face our outward struggles, right? And in the midst of them, what we desire is a pastor or a church that would somehow help us eliminate or address the struggles. And so we love to be told 10 steps to a better life. We love that. But this is not what we see this writer do. He doesn't give them instructions on how to deal with the persecution per se. What he does is he addresses an even greater threat. A threat that has led some to a place of utter ruin. A threat that leads men and women to a point of no return. And this is the cloud of danger that is looming over them. And it's the, most, it's the concern of the writer. And this danger, this threat, it's not, it's not just an outward condition, but it's an inward one. It is the type of condition that leads men to cry out Hosanna on Sunday and crucify him on Friday. And dealing with it is at the heart of our text this morning and at the heart of the whole book of Hebrews. I mean, let's, let's review a little bit. We have learned over the past few weeks that, that these people in this book 
we learned that they were drifting. Instead of rowing against the current of sin, they were drifting away from the message of salvation. We've learned that they are neglecting the great salvation they claim to have. We learned that their grips on joyful, zealous hope is slipping and they are in danger of falling into a heart of unbelief. We learned that in chapter 3. And their hearts are hardening to the truth of God's word. Their conversation is losing its spiritual urgency and their ears have become dull. And as a result, we learned last week that they are losing their desire to press on to maturity. In fact, instead of being teachers of the word and living in, 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 the, in the meat of God's word, they were but babies drinking milk and needing to be taught once again. They are becoming weak and sluggish. And my friends, this is the condition that is looming over them. And church, it is the very condition that looms over many in church today. There is this false sense of assurance in the American church today that as long as you sparingly participate in some of the church's activities and keep blabbering with some minimal accuracy of the elements, the principles of God, you are in a good place. Church goers today are complacent with a lack of growth in their lives that is baffling. I mean, let me illustrate this for you, okay? We have at home a five-year-old daughter. Her name is Isabel. You guys, many of you guys know her. It is, it is the undivided opinion of Christine, my wife, and I, that she is the smartest, brightest, and cutest little girl that ever lived. <laughs> you see, she says very clever things and is able to comprehend them beyond her years. And we take great delight in her. But if at this stage of her life, something would happen and her body would keep growing, but her mind just stopped and she went on saying the same clever things she is saying now, all while her body matured and grew into full womanhood, we would no longer find delight in what she says. Our joy would be turned to sorrow. We would feel great grief at the sight of our dear ones suffering from arrested development. Yet our churches, my friends, are filled with individuals who have been Christians for years. They come to church on Sundays carrying their leather Bible cases, speaking Christianese, shouting, Amen, in certain portions of the sermon, and yet they are still the same as the days of their conversion. Same lusts, same attitudes, same behaviors, same ignorance when it comes to the scripture, and same retarded maturity. And yet they are content with that. And this is the condition that last week's text started addressing as we heard from Al through the preaching of the previous verses that we are to grow up. As Christians, we are to persevere. We are to stand there, hanging in there, zealous, growing Christians who through the nourishment of the meal grow up into solid food and into the thick meat of God's Word. 
The path of the Christian is the path of growth. This is what the Hebrew writer has eagerly communicated to us. And this is the main point of our text this morning. What he has done is he has, he has diagnosed their condition. And the writer is prescribing now the remedy to that condition. This is what he's prescribing in the main point of our text. We could summarize it in this one, one sentence. This is what he's saying. Press on the path to maturity. Press on the path to maturity. That's what he's telling his audience. That's what he's telling us this morning. Press on to the path of maturity. You see, we are being reminded here in our text that there are only two alternatives for those of us who claim to trust Christ. There are only two paths for us. One is to press on toward maturity in knowledge and faith and hope and holiness. The other is to drift slowly into indifference and dullness and eventually destruction. And one of the great errors of this Hebrew Christian church and, 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 and of the modern evangelicals today is, is this false assurance of, of a halfway point where you can stay as professing Christians, not pressing forward and not drifting backwards. But church, there is no such place. And that's the point of this book. Either we press on towards maturity, or we drift back towards destruction. There is no in between. There is no safe, neutral ground. And so before we go on, let me tell you what I'm not saying. <laughs> this is where it gets tough. I am not saying you can lose your salvation. Now that we got that over with, <laughs> let's move on. And allow the text to inform us of what it is saying. Okay? There are three things we are going to see from this text. In point one and two, we are going to look at the two different paths. The path to maturity, the path to destruction. And in our third point, we will look at the progress of hope. Okay? So let's, let's dig in. Uh, first point, the path to maturity. If you can read with me, verse 1. <clears throat> verse 1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Stop right there. You see, the writer picks up where we left off last week. How do we know? How do we know? Therefore, yes. Do you guys remember, you guys remember what he told us last week? Look at the end of chapter 5 in the, in the last verse, verse 14. This is what he described for us, the process by which the mature have become mature. He says, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What he's saying is, unless you train yourself to maturity, you won't mature. Let me illustrate this for you. My wife is often reminding me of this truth. You see, 
I'm ashamed to say this. But it's not like you guys can't see this. To my shame, I often tell Christine, honey, I need to lose weight. And the frustrating part is that I never do anything about it with any consistency. And so, of course, the re- she reminds me, unless you get to training, you will not lose weight. And many of us are the same way with our Christian life. We say we want to grow, but we avoid the training. And so this writer is telling us, is stop avoiding the training. You know the path. You know the path to maturity. Let's go. Let's press on. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on the hands, on, on off the hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. You see, these verses bring up a very important question, and one we are in need to understand. In verse 12 of chapter 5, he told them this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. Again what? The basics, right? But in the verses in chapter 6, he's telling them to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. Is he contradicting himself? No, he's not. You see, 5.12 says they need teaching about the basics. 6.1 says they should not lay the foundation of the basics again. So it's, it's, it's evident here that there is a difference between the teaching and they, that they need in 5.12 and the laying again of foundation in 6.1. One they need and one they don't. What's the difference? And I think we can understand the difference when we understand the diagnosis. You see, their issue was not a lack of foundational knowledge, but a lack of building upon that knowledge. They were your, 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 your 20, 30-year-old Christian who sits in church, and when you ask him questions about the gospel, he can, man, he can lay it out for you. He can lay it out for you. But when you look at their lives, there hasn't been any building. They're stagnant. So the issue was not a lack of foundational knowledge. They were stuck. They were stagnant. In other words, what we saw last week from uh, chapter 5, verse 14, they need to learn how to take the milk, the basic truths of the gospel and practice how to grow with them. The need is not to rebuild foundation. The need is to stay on them and live by them. Okay? They need to learn how you take basic gospel truths about Christ and use it to become discerning people about good and evil so that they attain maturity. Let me go back to my illustration. What good is it for me to tell Christine every Sunday night, tomorrow I will start exercising and dieting? If by Tuesday morning I'm ready to quit. You see, when I quit, it means that I will have to start all over again the following week or the following weeks or the following months or maybe the following years. 
My lazy butt will never shed the extra weight because all I ever do is talk a lot and lay foundation after foundation. But I never persevere. Like verse 14 is asking me to do by constant practice. And this is how some of you treat your Christianity. You treat the ABCs of the Christian life as if they were a parking lot or a stopping place. And you lay foundation after foundation after foundation. But the ABCs of the Christian life must be a launching pad, not a parking lot. He is not telling them that they are to despise or abandon the basic principles of Christ. These principles are important. He told us that last chapter in verse 12. But he is saying is that we are to build upon this foundation. We are to move on. We are to build on it. And so let us look at the foundation. Because then he describes this foundation for us in chapter 6, okay, verses 1 and 2. He says this, Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. You know what's striking about this list is this. It is strike, it's striking that this list is not distinctively Christian. In fact, it is made up of foundational Old Testament and Jewish truth and practices that the reader probably built on when they were converted. In other words, when they came to church and they went to Sunday school, these were the basic truths that were being taught to them through the Bible. What was their Bible? The Old Testament. Truths about repentance from dead works and faith towards God, right? That's one pair. Truths about instructions about washings and laying of hands. Truth about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All these are common Old Testament beliefs and current practices among the Jews. So when these readers were evangelized and converted into Christianity, these things seem to have been the foundational way of helping them understand the work of Christ. And so they were taught, so, so are we, right? That these are the foundations of the Christian faith that find themselves as shadows in the Old Testament that pointed to the fulfillment of all things in Christ. So when verse 1 says they should leave the elementary doctrines of Christ, literally is saying the word of the beginning of Christ, what I think it means is that they should not occupy themselves so much with the pre-Christian foundational preparations for Christ to such a point that they neglect the glory of the gospel and they neglect how to use it to grow into maturity and holiness. It is time to press on, Hebrews. It is time to press on, church. We must build on the foundation of the gospel and we must grow. This is the path of maturity. It is the path in which a professing Christian is not just professing to know Christ, but actually growing into the very image of Christ. And the writer encourages them by reminding them, we, we are in this together. Church, we are in this together. Let us press on to maturity. And he says in verse 3, we will do this if God 
permits. He's saying, guys, let us bring, let us bring on maturity. Let us press on to maturity. Let us study, teach, ponder the deep things of Christ together. Let us apply our minds. Let us seek to grasp the truth, striving and agonizing and praying to understand it. And let us put into practice in our church and in our homes and in our jobs. Let's have it transform us. We will do this. But don't forget, we can only do this if God permits. Whoa. What does this mean? You mean it's not up to me? You mean God holds people back from maturing? No, this is not what it means. What it means is that God is God and we are not. My friends, some of you have come long ways, long ways from the days of your conversion. Some of you have become teachers and are enjoying a steady meat diet. If this is your case, it has only been possible because God has permitted it. God is at work. The one who gives the growth has carried you to maturity. In fact, that led us, okay, that let us leave, that leave, is in the passive tense. It's, we're, we're, let us be carried onto maturity. That's what he's saying. My friend, God does not owe any of us the grace to conquer our rebellion. We are all rebellious. But God does not owe any of us the grace to conquer our rebellion. We can't buy growth from God by anything we do. It is all a work of grace by a sovereign and merciful God. This is why many times when I'm up here, I weep as I see what God has done in my life and in the lives of many of you here. You see, many of you have received God's wonderful grace. Even if the growth has been slow in your walk, even if it has been tiny, and you're just pressing on, right? That is God's grace. You would not be able to even lean there if it wasn't because God has carried you there. My friends, God does not owe us anything. But these three words, if God permits, they give us a joyous encouragement, right? It's a joyous encouragement. But they also give us a sobering reality. Just as God permits, he also does not permit. Either God works in us what is pleasing in his sight, or he doesn't. That is, either he permits our progress towards maturity, or he doesn't. Because it doesn't happen. I can give you an illustration of this. And we're actually going to see this illustration uh, in, um, in Hebrews 12. 
But it's an illustration of Esau. You guys remember Esau from your Sunday school classes, right? What did Esau do? Esau sold his inheritance for the pot of soup. He sold his inheritance. And we read from the scriptures that after he did this, after he gave up his birthright, he seeked repentance. But he found no place for repentance. Though he sought it with, with tears in his eyes. He was rejected. He has so profaned the grace of God that he was no longer able to repent. Even though he wept and looked like he was sincere, God had forsaken him utterly and there was no more patience. This is the precious and terrible warning behind the words, if God permits. God is not obligated to grant repentance to anyone. Which leads us to our second point this morning. The path to destruction. You see, this is the danger of prolonged immaturity. Of remaining in one place all your Christian life. You see, when this is the case, it suggests that you may be one of those whom God will not allow to go further. Instead of being in the path of maturity, you find yourself in the path of destruction. Now please, church, pay, pay close attention to what I'm saying. It's not as if God is hindering your good will. He is just leaving you in your bad will. You see, if we have any good will towards God, this is the work of grace. And we will make progress and we will mature. But if you're not making progress and you're not maturing, this is the word of God for you this morning. There is a path of no return. There is a path that leads to destruction and there is a path that leads to utter ruin and you might, you might be on it. And this is why this Hebrew writer has been warning them from the very beginning of chapter 2. And he does it again here, starting in verses 4, going through 8. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. This writer has just turned to his audience with much assurance, saying, this we will do. Guys, we are going to press on and be mature. But then he finishes verse 3 by reminding them that ultimately they depend on God for this. And to make this point, he is going to illustrate this utter dependence on God by showing that there is a situation where it is impossible. And since it is impossible, we need to pay close attention. And we need to be dependent on our sovereign God. 
He says, for it is impossible. And he says, in the case of those, in other words, he, he's not talking about his audience, okay? In, in the first three verses, he uses this, this first person plural pronouns, the personal pr- pronouns, and he uses the third, uh, the first person, he uses us and we. He says, let us, we will do this. And so he's identifying himself with those who will press on to maturity with full dependence in God. But now, for the next four verses, he turns to the third person plural, those, they. You see, he's making a distinction between the two groups. But he is using the reality of the situation that these people in in verse 4 are in to warn his audience of the grave danger. The warning is for those who are stagnant and indifferent to press on to maturity because they're in danger of unattainable repentance and in danger of utter ruin. Church, we can sit here week after week completely unaffected by the word of God, stagnant in our growth, never changing, and yet feel secure of some profession of faith we made years ago. And if this is you this morning, God is addressing you, and he's telling you, press on the path to maturity. Don't be like those who have been enlightened. Don't be like those who have tasted. Don't be like those who have shared and ultimately fall away to a point of impossible, not difficult, but impossible repentance. And church, these four passages of Scripture are one of the most or the most debated passages in church history because the question then becomes, can someone experience saving faith and lose it? But the greatness of the Word of God is that these passages were not written in a vacuum. You see, the writer is not telling us something new. In fact, he is giving us the same warning all along. He warned us in chapter 2 not to neglect the message of salvation. In chapter 3, he said, consider Jesus. And after after doing so, he reminded us of the generation in the wilderness who saw God's work for 40 years. Yet their unbelieving hearts led them to fall away from the living God. And he warned us in light of this generation by saying this in verse 12 of chapter 3. He said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that leads, leading you to fall away. What led them to fall away? An evil, unbelieving heart. That's what. And so throughout all scripture, those who fall away are those whose heart have not been regenerated. May we be reminded that as part of the covenant community, the fallen Israelites had, this is what they'd done. They had placed the blood on their doorposts. They had eaten the Passover lamb. They miraculously crossed the Red Sea. They observed the pillar of cloud by day and by night. They had tasted the miraculous waters of Morah. They had eaten the manna that came from heaven and heard the voice of God in Sinai, swore they would obey, repented of their sin, But their hearts were hardened by unbelief. And they fell away from the living God. Even after repenting quite a few times. Church, there are some of you here this morning 
who had been enlightened by the light of God's word Sunday after Sunday, but your hearts are still darkened. You have tasted the heavenly gift, but you have not eaten of his flesh. You might have even tasted the heavenly gift this morning when we did communion. You have shared in the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has never indwelled you. You have tasted the good word of God just as King Herod enjoyed the preaching of John the Baptist, it was said. But you suppress it and you kill it just as Herod killed John. You have tasted the power of the age to come, but you have failed to experience that very power working in you. In fact, you are like the field of thorns and thistles, which the writer uses to illustrate those who fall away. So let's look at verses 7 and 8. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who forsake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. The illustration he's using here just further strengthens the argument that the apostates, the people that have fallen away, were never saved. The illustration is not of a field that had life and vegetation and then lost it. The picture he gives us is of two different fields, two kinds of fields. One is fruitful and blessed. The other is barren and cursed. And I think the point is that if we have sat in church with the light of the Spirit and the Word and, and, the, and the work of God coming to us and blessing us and even shaping us in some degrees, but then turn our back on it, we are like a field without vegetation and will come into judgment. The rain we have drunk, the light, the spirit, the word, the powers, produce no life in the field. My friends, this is why a refusal to press on to maturity in the Christian life should be very alarming to us. Because if this is you, these verses are telling us that you are in danger of falling away. Now, I'm not talking about those of us who struggle through sin. That's not what he's talking about. Those who have fallen away. The, the, word, the same word used there is the word for apostate. An apostate is someone who has not, who, not someone who's just sinning. Not even a, a, a believing Christian who, who's deliberately sinning. But an apostate is someone who has turned away completely. Someone who is now against Christ. Someone who has turned completely against Christ. Who renounces their faith. That is what he's talking about. And the American church today is deceived in believing in such a thing as fruitless Christianity. My friends, there is no such thing. You are either in the path of maturity or the path of destruction. God's warning is a warning of mercy. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to be deceived with a false assurance of salvation that professes faith but possesses a barren heart. Ultimately, those who are sitting 
in church for years with no fruit in their lives can be so hardened, is what he's saying, that they become enemies of the very faith they once professed. And so if you're sitting here this morning, and you're taking this word in, and you're like, man, you know, I struggle so much. Guys, this very warning is God wanting you to have an assurance. You see, the very, the very reason why you are struggling in your heart is because God is at work in your heart. Because God is permitting you to be convicted. God is permitting you to find repentance. Unlike these. But there is a warning. And the warning is that if you're not feeling anything, if your life is a mess, if your life is fruitless, and you have no concern about it, if you are content in how you're living, then you might be falling away. My friends, this is such a hard message for me to preach. And I'm running late. But there is hope for us, church. There is hope that leads us into salvation. And this is what God wants us to leave with this morning. Our pressing on the path of maturity is a progress of hope. And so we go into our third point, the progress of hope. And turn with me to verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case... Thank you, Lord. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You see, the writer turns from warning them to encourage them. We can see again, he goes back to that first and second personal pronouns in his addressing of them, and he tells them he feels sure of better things for his readers than the things that we saw in verses 4 and 8, things that did not lead to salvation. What did they lead to? They led to falling away. But he is sure of better things, things that accompany or that literally are having salvation for, for, for this people. Church, God doesn't want us to have a false sense of assurance. That's why he's warning us from having an empty hope. But, he, but that doesn't mean that God wants us to waver in our assurance of hope. It's far from it. He wants to leave them with the assurance of hope that will catapult the pressing onto maturity. We will not press on to maturity unless we have hope. He understands that the warning they just heard would not be of benefit if it were not received with hope. You see, we just can't, we can't flirt with Christ. You cannot say, well, I have accepted Christ. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. He is warning believers not to cross that line into flirting with Christ. But he feels sure of better things. He has good hope for them with regards to their salvation. And so why is he so sure? And just a few verses back, we, 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 we saw him telling them that they're babies drinking milk, but yet he's sure of the fullness of hope for them. Why? Well, let's look at verse 10. He says, For God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Here we see the reason why he's hopeful. He is hopeful because he has seen these people minister to one another. He has seen their love for one another. And because he has seen their love, he is hopeful that the reason that they love one another is that the love of God has been shed abroad in their hearts. That's why he says, the love that you have shown for his name. He is pointing to the small fruit in their lives. Their small fruit, it's small, but it's there. And it's not there so that it would merit them salvation. It's there because of the love that they have shown for his name. <laughs> the writer wants us to be assured, not because our ministry towards others grants us any merits with God, but because they give evidence of the work God is doing in our hearts, and they testify of God's glorious name. God will not be unjust. You see, if someone was actually saved, and there was fruit in their lives, and then all of a sudden, they renounced Christ, and they, and they fell away, that would almost be unjust. I mean, didn't God, wasn't God the one that brought the fruit? And so God is working in them, bringing fruit in them, and then all of a sudden they fall away? No. He is sure of their assurance of hope. He is sure because the love that they have shown for his name God would be unjust if he ever acted in a way that belittled the greatness of his name. The name of God has the greatest value in the universe, greater than all material value, greater than all human value. So the greatest injustice in the universe is neglecting and dishonoring the name of God. So when verse 10 says that God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, you can hear what is at stake. His name is at stake. And the work he remembers is specifically the ministry to the saints, the holy ones, the ones set apart for God. And so what is at stake? It's God's name. In other words, God looks at our ministry to the saints and this love to the name of God and says, what I see here is not human performance. What makes me, that makes me a debtor and deserves the repayment of salvation? I do not see people calling attention to themselves or how valuable they are to God. I do not see people demanding a just recompense for mer mer uh, meritorious work. What I see is needy people looking away from themselves to an all-satisfying glory of God, to the name of God, and this is what it means that they love God's name. My friends, God wants us to have our hope grounded in His name. He wants us to have our hope grounded in His character. He wants us to have our hope grounded in His justice. But how do we know? How do we know that our hope is grounded in such a way? You know how? We know that our hope is grounded in such a way when we are progressing in hope. That's how 
we know. We are able to press on the path of maturity through the, a progressing and the full assurance of hope. And this is what he tells us, and he ends with, in, in verses 11 and 12, he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? Why does he desire this? So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. What is unmistakable here is the last phrase. This is the goal of our earnestness. We started this last week. The whole goal of this book and the sharp warnings that we have received and have yet to receive coming up is that through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. Through faith, through trust, through hope. The great battle of the Christian life is to keep trusting God, keep our hope, have an unfailing hope in God. So the writer is saying, be diligent, but your ho- put your hope on God alone and not on the things of this world. Cherish God and not this age. Treasure God and, and not this world. Trust God in your, and not your own abilities. Not even your ability to do good things. This is the assurance of hope. Hope in the power of God. Hope in His Son, Jesus, who is our great high priest. And has offered on behalf of us a perfect sacrifice. His blood. Hope in the God who by a single offering has perfected us for all time. The sum of the matter is God wants you, my, my friends, to have the full assurance of hope. As verse 11 says. That leads you not to lazy, sluggish, milk drinking instead of feasting on meat. He wants you to feel strong and confident and secure and bold and ready to lay down your life for the sake of ministry and for the glory of God's name. Church, where is our hope? Where is our hope? Let us pray. Father, This has been been a lot of meat, Lord. Father, I pray that through my limited gift, Lord, and through my limited preaching, Father, that you would still impart the assurance of hope. That you would still impart in us a faith, a hope that leads us to press on. A faith and hope that leads us to mature. A faith and hope that brings fruit in our lives. Not one that is false hope that leads us to no fruit. God, anything we do, we can only do through you. You are our hope. You are our overcoming king. Jesus, we need you. We pray. Amen. Amen. Church, I wish we could respond corporately to this message, but we need to be released. Um, But please, respond to it with your friends. Respond to it with your brothers and sisters. Come to us. Let us pray. Respond to it at home. May the Lord bless you. This morning you are released.